When Chad Hildebrandt requested the financials of a business he was interested in buying, the seller gave him a manila envelope with some numbers on it. Not numbers in the manila envelope, like a printed stack of financials. No, just some numbers scrawled on the outside of this envelope. That was it. Red flag, right? Well, Chad turned this red flag green by eventually getting his hands on the business's bank statements and reconstructing the last three years of the business's books into his own spreadsheet. This arduous process took dozens of hours, but by the end of it, Chad knew how cash moved in and out of the business better than anyone, even the seller, and he liked what he saw. This is the story of how Chad Hildebrandt left a 17-year career in finance with a wife and three kids and bought a business with a lot of hair on it. He experienced real pain both during and after the acquisition, but in his words, I love this and wouldn't change it. Please enjoy this conversation with Chad Hildebrandt, owner of a $3 million candle manufacturer in New Jersey. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly-Risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. Chad Hildebrandt, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Chad, I love having guests who have written down their thoughts on their process of buying a business. Uh, it shows that they're a reflective person, which almost all of my guests are anyway. Uh, but this assures that a guest is self-reflective and they've kind of pre-structured their thoughts and, you know, done my work for me. And you, Chad, did that in spades. You sent me this wonderful page or two uh, here of notes that I get to work from as we talk now. There is so much here. Thank you for so much prep, Chad. It is a fascinating and fun story, fun for we, the listeners, maybe less so in parts for you, the protagonist, <laughs> but let, let's get into it. Chad Hildebrandt, who are you, please? And how did you come to buy a small business? Uh, in its simplest forms, I'm a, I'm a candle maker. Uh, I this all uh, somehow, you know, in short, my journey was from a, a journalism major in undergrad to, you know, banking Wall Street to candle making. And I think uh, throughout that process, I think uh, I'm, I'm 40 now. Um, and throughout that process, I think I've always just been kind of been feeling my way through life and I'm never, never certain what I want to do next, but, but kind of open-minded. And so there's, uh, 
there's obviously a, a journey and a story behind all that. And so you, while you majored in, majored in journalism, you spent many years in finance. I mean, you've had a whole career in finance. T tell us about that and how that evolved into eventually wanting to buy a small business. Yeah, um, you know, I, I enjoyed. I had a, you know, I probably switched from major a couple of times in college and, and landed on journalism. I was pretty happy with that, and I think uh, I, I've I've took away from it a tremendous appreciation for writing and, and print journalism in particular. And one of the most important takeaways I learned from majoring in journalism is that it doesn't pay student loans very well. Uh, <laughs> so I um, and e and even worse now than twenty years ago or whenever it was you were an undergrad. Yeah, so I, and and I, I graduated with a, a uniquely high amount of undergrad student debt. I'm still not Ooh. sure how that happened, uh, but um, <laughs> I, I just I realized very quickly I'm like, oh, I got to make money, and I had a friend who I played rugby with, who worked at a bank and he was an intern, probably one step above the mailroom. And uh, I'm like, I'd like to do that. That, that sounds neat. <laughs> and so um, literally started out making photocopies at a bank, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a smaller bank uh, called Standard Chartered. It's a little bigger now. You'll see him on the cover of Liverpool uh, as a sponsor. Um, and so focused in Asia and probably a year later after kind of working, grinding and, and introducing people and asking for opportunities, I got a opportunity in management training program. And I got shipped off to Asia for a little while um, to do training and, and to do some work out there. Uh, and then uh, found my spot within the organization um, in an area called transaction banking. It, you know, I'd say in, in short, uh, working with treasury teams within large corporates, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies on uh, you know, financing imports and exports. Um, okay. I, you know, I, I did that for a little while. I think in my training program, I had, I had done opportunities in, I had, I had a, on uh, sales and trading and um, strategy. I actually came out of the program during uh, the crisis, so OE. Uh, so when I had, a, when I came out of a training program, you got to find a job within the bank. It's during the crisis. All these opportunities evaporated both internally and externally. And I think having gone through that, crisis, financial crisis early in my career. I, I think there's elements of that that still shape how I think today of just seeing going from if I got fired today, I would have a better job tomorrow and, and how kind of flush with opportunity Wall Street has. And then almost seemingly immediately everything evaporating, just just people I thought had amazing jobs and have lives were set, were suddenly jobless and had no opportunity. And you just suddenly hold on to everything you have and, and just um, I, I kept my job. I had an opportunity. I was very fortunate, but but I think that that shapes you know when you go through uh, kind of quasi crises like that, it, it really stick builds scar tissue in you. Mm -hmm. and, and seeing kind of the despair in a lot of other people. And again, I was fortunate. Um, went to HSBC, uh, then Deutsche Bank, and and really dug my heels. And I think broadly, again, kind of uh, in a quasi loan structuring group. Uh, uh, Trade finance was was my specialty, so financing imports and exports. Um, I did have an opportunity towards the end of my career to work with uh, family offices. So, within our sitting between our private bank and our um, our investment bank, uh, we did family office coverage. So, family offices, especially ones that focused on uh, private equity, and that was kind of my first intro into kind of lower middle market acquisitions and seeing how they think about these things and talking with them. And that was really interesting. And a lot of, a lot I took away from that. And, um, most recent, my last job before I quit was with a pretty notable, um, private equity firm 
working with a group within there um, on their working capital strategy. Um, I think I had a tremendous opportunity in my career, a lot of great experiences. I think ultimately I always knew I was never happy in the corporate world. I loved clients. I loved working on solutions. I think most people I talk to don't love that they work for a big company, but you, you find a way to make it work for you. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I always hated it. I, I'm not a particularly you know, structured person. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, I came to you with all these notes of how things should work of, of kind of, I came to you with a lot of structure, uh, but mm-hmm. it's, that kind of came off the back of me looking at the conversation we had and said, oh, good. Oh, goodness. There's not a lot. There's not a ton of structure that I need to add. In. So it's like this, this, this overcompensation because you're actually <laughs> such right. an unstructured person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but, but I think ultimately the, the higher I climbed, I, I realized several things in my career, the higher I climbed, you know, the more money or opportunity I got, I, it, I wasn't happier. Um, I became more disillusioned with, you know, working for big banks and finance and, I always wanted, I, owning my own business is something I always wanted to do. Um, I never knew how to do it. On the side for the past 10 years, I had been buying multifamily real estate. So I, I developed this playbook. I'm like, okay, if I continue my career, on the side, I keep managing real estate. Um, this, I, I think this is a home run. I, I should work out really well. And I'm very confident that would have worked out. Unfortunately, I just wasn't happy. It was brutal. You know, working a lot of hours during the week and then managing real estate on the side on the weekend myself. Um, so I had several properties, multifamily properties. Um, uh, can you define that for us. What, what exactly was your portfolio? So I had, uh, I had a, a four family, uh, low income section eight. I had a three family that was kind of towards the, the higher end of the spectrum of, of tenant base. Uh, and then I had a, I have a, um, a vacation rental as well, that, that a short-term rental that we rent out. And then I was about to close on my largest property, which would have been, uh, you know, a, an eight family with, uh, eight apartments with a mixed use retail on the base mm-hmm. and going to negotiate, make that work, the negotiation of that. And I just, I think I just, at the end of it, I just pulled the plug and I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is, this is brutal. I'm, I'm just inundating myself. And again, on, on paper it was such a clear path to success and it, but it was kind of one of those things where I kept thinking, okay, when I'm mid fifties, I'm set, I'm done. And then being like, yeah, but between now and then it's going to be a rough ride. Um, and I, I think especially now there's a lot of emphasis, you know, see on Twitter online of, of, you know, own real estate. It's a great investment. Do this. It's, it's passive. And it, it's just anyone I've ever met who owns real estate and is really, it's a meaningful part of lives. It is incredibly stressful in ways that do, are not talked about. Um, I don't, the hours I worked in real estate overall were actually pretty minimal, but they were brutal. You know, you, you don't get calls for a, um, you know, a broken water heater on, you know, a Saturday afternoon when nothing's going on. You get it at 4 a.m. in the morning, you get it on a Christmas Eve or you get yeah. calls on the busiest work day on a Monday and you're about to travel and someone calls you at 4 a.m. and says, there's water coming through my ceiling. What's going on? Yeah. And it's, it's brutal. And then you know, I'd spend, I'd say like 30 days of the month, I'd be like, this is the easiest job. I just collect the paycheck, I click the rent checks. And then like one or two days a month, you're like, this is awful. I want out. And then you just well, got to ride it I out guess those it's, days. I guess it's quiet. It's like, it's like being a fire person. It's yeah. quiet, 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 then crisis. Yep. Then quiet, quiet, quiet. So, so if there's ever any work, it's always crisis mode. There's never kind of, you know, in between just managing things like, you know, people prefer. So That's it's nothing right. or crisis. Yeah. 
And then I, I thought I hit my niche in, you know, dealing with low income, and and uh, I, I I appreciated that, you know, and, and I almost part part of my problem was I probably interacted and probably did too much for tenants and with the properties and took a lot of pride in what I did. But um, you know, it, it's it's a lot more work, you know, um, in in that space. So it's um, but but I enjoyed it. It was great. Um, but but uh, it was a great experience. But. I got to a point, I just liquidate everything. I'm like, I'm out. I got to a point where I said, okay, I'm going to leave my job in a year um, with or without an opportunity. I'm, I'm, but I'm done. I'm out. I want to do something different. Um, in the most serendipitous way, without full knowledge, this coordinated exactly with me paying up, paying my last student loan payment, oh. which is like the, the weirdest irony of all. I, so I, as I made this decision, I looked and I was like, oh, my student loans are done. And you're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> this, this times out perfectly. Not that, that that had long not been a thing holding me back or keeping me in with what I did in my 20s. It certainly was. But at the same time, it's not to say that, you, you know, you were felt totally unburdened and free and clear because you got a family. You got three kids. That's right. I, I, have, I have three kids. My wife, my wonderful wife works as well. Um, so we are, you know, I think as a family, we, we are an action packed family. There's, there's not a dull moment. Um, but you know, they're, they're the reasons you do it all. Um, but, uh, so how did you, how did, so what, okay. So you've decided enough is enough after 17 years of, I assume is a successful career mm-hmm. and also building this real estate portfolio on the side, which also has been, uh, has been rewarding for you financially, but you're also done with that. Um, so, so, so that, so then what, what, what do you consider? What do you look at and how do you discover the concept of buying a business? So from spending a lot of time on Twitter, there's obviously there's a big real estate community and people talking about real estate and they kind of there was an overlap with SMB small business Twitter with a lot of people buying businesses. And, you know, you, you follow those people, you see what they have to say and you're like, oh, wow. And I can just go on bizbysell.com and look at a business. And I did that. And I, 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 I don't remember the moment where I was like, oh, I should just look at that and do that. But, but I did it. I, you know, I might have spoken to someone. And then I just, I just dug in, you know, went full in on, on podcasts and, um, and Twitter and reading what people had to say and looking at businesses and just sifting through. I, uh, I actually didn't, there's a lot of things looking back on it. I, I don't want to say I did wrong. I mean, obviously there's always, when you're joining a new process, always things you do wrong, but it didn't occur to me that there was a ton of deal flow and volume outside of. You know, what's posted online, public online. I'm just like, oh, mm-hmm. here's the opportunities. And obviously, as you know, with the public opportunities, you have to, you know, there's, uh, you have to sift through a lot more, you know, a lot of restaurants, a lot of, uh, a lot of things I just had no interest in. And I, I knew, I did know I had parameters. I said to myself, you know, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what business I want to buy. I was pretty open-minded, but I knew I didn't want anything to do with food. And I didn't want uh, anything retail, really. Um, I had actually even even franchises. I had poo pooed in the beginning. Looking back on it, I think I think franchises are actually a very interesting opportunity. But that at the time I had I had taken that out. So you know I had looked at like a bread truck route. I had looked at um, you know th- there were some clothing wholesalers. Like I, I looked at some far and wide. I was just <laughs> my approach was I just look at a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know what what it is I'm looking for. But when I see it, I like it, and uh, yeah, I'll know or at least. I'll know I don't want to do that thing or I'll understand that. And, and at, at this point, have you, what are your kind of financial parameters and where are you searching? I assume it's a geographic, 
I know from our pre-call, it's a ge geographically constrained search. You've got three kids. You're not going to be uprooting your whole family. So where are you searching and what are your financial parameters? Yeah. So I, I said, uh, I live, I, I live in Jersey city just outside New York. Uh, so I wanted to be within an hour uh, of where I live that I, I didn't, I, because my wife works, she's got a great job. I wanted her to, you know, we didn't want to uproot that. Um, and we're, we're happy with where we are. So within an hour, um, I wanted a business that I could understand. You know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of emphasis now here on like, you know, buying an HVAC company or plumbing business. And they, uh, to me, that's crazy. If you don't, if you don't understand that business and you have to jump into it, um, that's, that's scary. And, and, and you're not going to build that knowledge. It takes a while to build that knowledge. Now people yeah. do that and they're successful at by all means, but, um, it wasn't, it, there wasn't, that wasn't the, the type of hair I was comfortable with. Uh, and so I think for size, you know, um, I, I was pretty open-minded, but I think I was probably in the, it was funny that I, I knew I at least wanted 500 SDE. Um, I, I knew that, um, I did have people I could raise money from if I needed to, but I think I knew early on, I didn't want to raise money. I wanted to be self-funded. I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways I had from my career is my success had always been beholden to other people's strategies. You know, and when you work for a company, you certainly have your ability to articulate a strategy or, or how you want to implement it, but you're still beholden to a broader strategy, both the companies and let's say your bosses or your teams. Um, and I think historically I've been beholden to ineffective strategies. And I think I, I, I had been burnt out from that. And I, I just said, I don't, I don't want to answer anyone. I want to be able to do whatever I want, when I want, and not have to answer anyone. Um, which is both, both the reasons for wanting to own my own business, but also just not wanting to have to deal with investors. Um, <laughs> yeah. And obviously you can get good supportive investors, but if I can just not have to deal with that and, and if I need advice, I'm happy to go outside and do that, but again, not be beholden to that. And certainly not want to make, you know, quarterly or annual reports to people and have to explain myself. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. So uh, 500 SEE, and, and you had liquidated this real estate portfolio at this point. So you had more, more liquid than probably, you know, a, the average person listening to this, right? You, you, what was, what's your, what was yeah. your balance sheet lo looking like? Um, I, I had a decent amount. I had, and what works out too is we, ne we never owned our house or apartment, so we always rented. So we had always put our money into pro other properties. Um, mm -hmm. So... 
we we were pretty liquid at that point beyond yeah um it, it's funny because for a certain point when I, when i did find this business i i for reasons we'll get into i didn't have the full cash needed to close so i was looking for a a partner to partner up with me and it was funny because i went to a number of friends who i think are more successful than me or certainly have higher paying jobs and they weren't as liquid as i was because they're just like wait how do you have that i'm like because it's everything i have it's every, it's every dollar i am just I, I don't own any investments or assets right now it's all just sitting in cash mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, it probably made me look more successful than I was. I remember a couple of my friends being like, you have how much? Again, I'm, I'm not, it wasn't certainly not enough to retire off of, but, but more than, um, it was just, I had a lot sitting in cash because I'd liquidated everything I had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, okay. um, so, uh, but, but what's, I, I, I didn't fully understand the, the SBA element. I, I knew I could get an SBA loan and, and and I could put down only 10% and I knew that, but I hadn't, I hadn't dug into that fully, the financing element un until I found the asset I was looking for. Now, my recommendation to people, yes, I'll fully understand the, the financing element, what, what you have in your capabilities and, and, and you can model out hypotheticals. I didn't, I didn't even think to do that at the time. I kind of was just full steam ahead, like I need to make this happen. Okay. But what, what do you mean? Are, did you then, when you learned about SBA financing, it didn't end up working? I, I feel like there's something in there where, where you were naive and learned something later. What is this learning? Well, I never, I, I think just as natural part of your search, you know, you, if you understand you know, the mechanics of SBA financing, both, both going into it, what the timing is and what, you'll, what, what, what it takes to get that financing, as well as what's available, what the rates are, you know, how much leverage you can get, all of that, that's going to help make a decision as far as the type of asset, how big of an asset you can get, for instance. Um, okay. And uh, I, I, di I didn't go that path. And for the most part, I never needed to. Um, a big reason being is the, the business I ultimately bought was not financeable for a number of reasons and, and uh it, it wasn't traditionally financeable someone had tried someone previously had tried to get financing it didn't work out i think uh the the, the books were just a complete mess um you you could have spent a lot of time trying to clean it up and make it make sense and and ultimately it was too tricky um now that ended up working in my favor because i because i was a little more liquid i could work with them and just say okay these people who need 90% financing to make this work, they're out. You're not going to, you're not, you're, no one can do that. The amount of people that can write a larger equity check, um, you, you know, that, that narrows the field a little bit. So I was in, mm -hmm. I was in a situation where I, I, I wasn't a competitive situation. Um, but you, you know, a funny story is the business, um, you know, it, it was, let's say, you know, it, I think initially including property you know, for sale, you know, a little over 3 million. Um, and the seller was unwilling to write a big seller note, but you couldn't get financing. So they wanted somebody who was just going to give them millions of dollars of cash for the business. And I, I knew that that was highly unlikely. In retrospect, that was impossible. It was never going to happen. At the time, I was like, oh, that's highly unlikely. It's probably, you're probably not going to find someone. Um, so I... You know, and we can get into the details, but long story short, it, it took almost a year of negotiating to get from where we started to the, my initial LOI to the deal we closed on. And the deal we closed on 
would have never happened. If, if I took that exact deal closed on and gave it to him day one, he would have never taken it. I, I think he needed to go through the motions of understanding what was feasible, what was reasonable. Because um, as you can imagine, if you're a business owner, you're looking to sell your business and brokers are vying for that business, sell that for you. Yeah, they're off. They're going to sell you the world. They're going to say your business is worth yeah. this much and you can do all these things. And, um, and they don't know. And, and understandably, um, you know, they wouldn't know that market. So uh, managing the expectations of the seller. And, and one of the things I learned, too, is um, you have a lot of lawyers and accountants in this process that I, I think they understand they're a very tight niche of the realm, but, but they're advising sellers. And, and frankly, in my experience, usually pretty poorly. Well, I, I want to um, spend some time on, on the transaction, but just before we get there, Chad, so, so, so wrap us up on kind of how you found this business. You're, you're looking in Jersey City, a radius of an hour uh, and 500 SDE. You're looking at biz buy sell. Are you, who else are you, how else are you searching or is that it? Um, take us from that point to finding this business. Yeah, so it was, I had three opportunities. I said, I, I found this business pretty quickly on biz by sell and I, I immediately liked it. You know, again, it's, it was, it's what we are. You know, the company is a candle co we are a private label candle manufacturer. We manufacture candles for other brands, hotels, uh, resellers, boutique shops, um, across the country. Um, mm -hmm. and, but the idea of, you know, there, there's a team of people, we've got 10 employees. Um, the idea that, okay, I can understand how candles are made. That's not something you need to go to school for, for instance, as mm -hmm. I've learned, there's an incredible amount of details and nuance and even science that goes into it. I would have never thought, but, um, but nonetheless, it, you know, you, you could, it's, it's attainable for sure. Um, and so manufacturing certainly was high on my list of things that were appealing. Um, I would say this is manufacturing light because it's not like we have, you know, a ton of automation and heavy equipment. But you want you liked a manufacturing business. You liked the concept of buying manufacturing because a lot of people have an aversion to manufacturing. It's 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 in that pile alongside whatever retail and convenience stores and and uh, restaurants that they won't touch. Um, but you liked it. I, I loved it. I, I think you know, it, it's kind of one of those you know, getting your hands dirty type things, and you know I think you know it's very process oriented. Um, yeah. You know, and I don't have a lot of other businesses that I've looked at to compare it to. It's what I know right now. It's obviously what I eat, drink, and breathe. But um, it, it, it's, 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 I love it. It's great. Um, and, cool. and so I think with regard to manufacturing, you're just looking at systems and processes all day and how do we make this better? And obviously, yeah. how, do we, how do we sell our product and, and create a superior product? Well, and there's also, I guess, one thing to like about manufacturing uh, without uh, speaking above my pay grade is, but my impression always is that there's a very much a recurring component to it. You establish relationships and then you're taking orders basically. Uh, so, right. you know, the phone rings and you, you got a new order to go out. And um, so, so we all love recurring and, and manufacturing has that in spades. Is, do you think that's a fair characterization? I think that's right. You know, I think obviously when you look, when you camera other businesses, let's say project-based revenues where it's one-off, like, you know, extreme example would be construction where, you know, uh, uh, you have much less reoccurring revenue and, and it's, you're working, going up project to project. Um, I think this, this is, this was, you know, high reoccurring revenue. Um, 
And, and that made a lot of sense to me. You know, obviously, our low concentration customers, broad customer base. I think the business did hit a lot of those things that people tend to look for. Um, you know, I, I thought there's a lot of opportunity, understandable business, broad customer base, reoccurring revenue. Um, I, I think those are things people like to see. Uh, and it certainly made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But actually, it is reoccurring revenue, repeat business. It's yeah, not, sorry. <laughs> it's not, it's not actually pure recur recurring where you are shipping whatever 5,000 units a month, month in, month out on, you know, digging the credit card or invoicing automatically to a customer. It's, you are taking orders and only, and only, you know, delivering your service or delivering your product once an order is received. That's, that's right. kind of what it looks like. Okay. That's right. That's right. And, and so, you know, customers will come in and, and there, there's no, there's no fixed contracts for saying we're going to buy this yeah. amount per quarter. It, it's as needed, but, but yeah. repeat customers. So you find this on biz by sell. It has a lot of the features that you like that we like uh, as searchers. And so, so take us into the, to the process now of, of what this acquisition this 11 or 12 months look like? Yeah. So I think I identified it pretty early. Um, yeah. And so something we've talked about is there's something I've learned in my career previously in banking that I think the most interesting deals we ever worked on were the ones that had a lot of hair on them, were the ones mm -hmm. that everyone, a lot of other places had passed on or, or looked a little hairy at first. And, and, when we, and we dug in and we said, actually, there's a lot, there's something really interesting here. Um, and that's not to say, you know, most deals certainly passed on most deals because they're too hairy and they weren't for us. But when you, when you can find the right hair and you can find something interesting, um, and you can find hair that you're actually comfortable with, or you feel you can mitigate appropriately, um, then that creates an opportunity for you where it's less competitive and yeah, you know, and you can, you can, you've got much more pricing leverage. And it's so well said in such a great insight. Carry on, please. Yeah. And, and then so that, that's, always, that's always made sense to me. It's always been super important. You know, those deals that are straight down the fairway, you know, both, both in, in, in lending or, or even in SMB where, oh, it's, you know, it, it, it ticks all the right boxes and everything's perfect. Um, usually you're going to pay for that. You know, I, I do hear these stories offhand of this perfect business someone got at the perfect price. Um, but, but usually when either A, when I talk to people off the record, it's not quite that. Or when you dig in, there's a little bit more to the story. Um, so, but I've always just, because of that his background of mine, I've always had this inclination to gravitate towards things that people kind of steered away from and just said, okay, mm -hmm. is there a way I can make this work for myself? Mm -hmm. um, and, and in this case, you know, we went into the, I went into the business. They, they had said, you know, it's not financeable. So um, initially they wanted a big check. I, as I was looking for a partner, the owner said, actually, I'll stay on. You can buy half the business uh, and I'll buy the other half. And then over time, I can buy him out. And so we spent a lot of time making that work and negotiating that. In retrospect, that was doomed to fail. And the blank stares I got from people as I described that structure to them were probably well-founded. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that well, moment well, of why it does strike me uh, something about that doesn't feel quite right. Yeah. But please articulate why why does everyone give you blank stares? Why was that such an obviously bad idea? That was a horrible idea. Um but 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 I needed to do that to get to where I needed to go. I think sure. I think that um listen, I think with any sell, you you have someone who has an existing business. Um they've been in this this previous person had been here for 20 years. Um and he was selling because he was burnt out. Uh understandably he 
he had a tremendous amount of success during COVID. Um, but it kind of like that also crushed him. Like he, the business was booming. It was great. And he had to work so hard to make it work on top of that supply chain was brutal. So orders are getting way backed up. You're getting yelled at all day in 2020 and 2021 because glass isn't coming in on time and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And so I think, and, and when I, and I saw that and I know there's normally a concern with sellers when they're selling too young, you know, you want someone selling at 65, 70. They wanted to stay in the business, but um, but they're, they're time to retire. And, and when they're younger, let's say 50, there's a concern, okay, am I catching a falling knife? Is there a reason he's selling that I don't know about? But I was able to so visit he was a, So he was that more that age? Yeah, he, he was 50. He, um, you know, visiting him, the factor and talking to him, I, I could see it. It was pretty evident why and what had happened and, and the stress that had come with it. Um, but in trying to make this work and trying to sell the business, he's like, okay, you know, I can, I can stick on, I've got a partner. But, but I think ultimately, you know, you know, and in probably one of your more recent podcasts, someone was saying is you don't, you don't buy a business, you buy a business with the intention of changing it. You know, you don't buy a yeah. business to keep it the exact same. You want to put your mark yeah. on it and yeah. you can't do that with the old seller there. Um, and that's not, that's not a specific comment because my seller, I think it's any seller. If they've run the business for 20 years, they have an idea of what works, how they want it to work. And coming in and trying to do that is tough. And he, even during the transition, after I'd bought the business and he stayed on for a couple of months, I'm starting to like tinker with things and I, I, could, I could see him twitching. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes understandably. Um, but you know, even the mistakes I made, there are mistakes I had to make to understand myself. Well, it, it's, it's uh, related to this theme of as buyers, you are you really think that you want the seller to be around for a long time as a resource because this is the this is going to be your your mentor in the business this is the person who's going to teach you everything and so much information is locked up in their head so you really you you really just want to kind of have the instinct to cling to them as a as a resource and then so often you get into the business and you know after not that a lot less than you would have predicted. You're ready for the seller to be on their way and like get out of your way. And you've kind of maybe you haven't downloaded everything from their brain, but it, it's enough. And and you just you you're getting that kind of too many cooks in the kitchen feeling. One hundred percent. So people people people. It seems like buyers often overestimate how long they'll want the seller around. So. Yeah. It want, uh, so it's funny because this whole process is all these things that happen that I thought were unique to me. And I'm just like, oh, I got to deal with this and that. And then every time I talk to somebody, I am absolutely blown away by how similar all our stories are in, mm. in stuff like that <laughs> about having the seller. You know, we had, um, uh, you, you know, we've talked about this. One of the most important things in my journey as far as finding a business, you know, negotiating it and closing and then operating is I developed a group of people I actually met on Twitter that are also SMB searchers, one of which was on your podcast, uh, Jesse, in the past. Um, yep. Coming back on again here in a couple of weeks. Yep. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, great guy. So, so him and a couple, we, we've, we've got him. We've got another guy who bought a boat manufacturer, another guy who bought a pool company, a, a, a pool services company. A, we got a water filtration company. Um, and so just a lot of different people all over the place. And we all kind of, for the most part, came through this together. We all closed within a year of each other. Um, so there's a point where we're all searching and, hey, is this happening? Is this crazy or is this normal? And 
having that was one of the most important things I can recommend to people is having a team of people that are going through it with you um, and, and, and sharing that. Because there's a lot of experiences that, that a lot of people can't relate to and, and they think they can and you talk to them about it and, and people will be practical and helpful about it, but, but it's not the same as having someone saying, I'm going through the exact thing right now. Yeah. Here's, how I'm, here's how I'm handling it rightly or wrongly. Well, that, that's a great that's a great piece of advice for the audience. So it was just a kind of a text chain. You guys were all on kind of a text group together or WhatsApp group or something? Yeah, we have the WhatsApp group. There's six of us right now, I think. And I've met people otherwise that I chat with you know, quite quite a bit. Uh, but we, we have met up in person a couple of times. Uh, since then, a couple of the guys, after they closed, they moved away to different states for their businesses. So I wasn't able, so we aren't able to meet in person as much. Uh, but but it's been I've been in that chat for almost probably a year and a half, almost two years <laughs> now, and I'd say we talk every day. Um, and, and if nothing That's else, great. just a vent. It's it's a therapy session, if you will, which is um, incredibly important. Well, speaking of uh, venting, as you go through your search, take us back now to yeah. uh, so the so so you decide not to do this thing where you're going fifty fifty with the existing with the seller, with the existing owner. So how does it evolve next? Yeah, so it, we we were working on an, a, an agreement, the contract to make that work. Um, and, you know, one of, each person's legal counsel is, is obviously in a position to protect their client and put up guardrails. And so when you have two people coming into the business, something as simple as, one of the lawyers having 50 50 is actually really tricky because you don't have a tiebreaker so yeah. how do you how do you integrate that so they're like someone should be 51 49 and and my lawyer is telling me you're going to buy the business this is going to be yours like you're you're coming in you're paying for it you should be 51. his lawyer is like you're crazy you know you need to we need to be 51 and just hitting a wall like that and i remember there's one one of the moments i realized this wasn't going to work is his lawyer had told him um if he's 51 he can come in and fire all your candle makers and bring in his own people. I remember thinking yeah. like, I, I just came from Wall Street. Like, I don't have a team of combat candle makers to bring in. Uh, you, you, know, um, you know, I wouldn't do that. But, but that's, I, I think that tends to be the nature of how lawyers think about these things sometimes. Um, and it's just examples like that. We just kept hitting roadblocks. It just was not working. Uh, and then... Through that process, I think the seller had realized, okay, the only way this is going to work is if I sell him the whole thing. He doesn't have enough money. I have to write a much bigger seller note. Um, and so he's, I think through that warmed up much more to saying, okay, if I want to sell this business, I have to be willing to write a much bigger seller note. Um, and you know, I, I probably ended up writing a 40% equity check, which is, which is more than I wanted to write in most of my liquidity. Uh, but the upside to that being, I actually, you know, cash flow is super simple. Um, I, I really don't have to worry about that nearly to a degree anyone else has to worry about. So, so it, it gave what me a mean? really because, good question. Because your loan is is less, so your interest Correct. payments are less and Correct. less burdensome every month. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So versus you, know, you, you come in, now you can pay less equity and, and then just keep a cushion in the background. Um, that, that works as well too, cash reserve. But um, I think paying a lot down, not having to pay that interest and, and just it, it does actually it did give me quite a bit of peace of mind, especially during you know slow seasons in the summer, for instance. Yeah.
So you had to bring 40% equity, and then what did what was the remaining 60%? Was that all seller note? Or 100% did, was seller there... note. That, that, that was all seller note, the 60%. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's huge. It's <laughs> a huge yeah, seller yeah, yeah. note. And I thought I was incredible. I thought I was a genius for working that out. And I met someone who got 100% seller note, and, I, and yeah, they, they took the cake. And obviously, as you can wow. imagine, there's, 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 they have their own set of hair on their deal. Um, yeah. But I think well, and, and returning to the the hair chat, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I love this point that you made earlier. So just to be crystal clear with the audience about what the hair of this deal was, it was the fact that it was unfinanceable. Uh, Correct, and because the books were not in any recognizable order. I think when I came in, he just he, you know, when I looked at the business, he gave me three of his financials on the back of a Manila envelope. And he's like, on the this back, is what I think. not even yeah, in a Manila yeah, no, envelope. It was like <laughs> it was scribble. It's like this is what I think the business is. And I'm like, okay, let's. Let's get started. Um, wow. And, 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 and I, Chad, I think when this concept, this, this idea of um, hair and, and being, you know, the buyer who's willing to deal with certain hair, but what that also means is that there's something about the hair that you can overcome that other people can't, that there's kind of a, you know, it, it's, it's less daunting to you because maybe you have a special skill or a special way to overcome this hair. So in, so in this case, like, why did that hair, why did, why was that not enough to scare you off? Was it because you had 17 years of experience in finance and kind of, and, and having non-existent, practically non-existent books was something that you felt that you were specially qualified to overcome? Um, yeah, probably the short answer is, you know, stupidity and naivete on my part. Um, but I, I think more, more broadly, uh, no, I, I think I could make that work is, is, it actually ended up being something that, that worked in my favor where a lot of people I spoke to who had seemingly clear books, I think very late in the process found out those books were not nearly as straightforward as they thought and had to do a lot of work backing into it. I wasn't in a situation where I had to take the seller's word on anything. I, I just said, okay, give me, give me your last three years of bank statements, of credit card statements, of everything. Give me all the data and I will just line by line sift through it. And I took we had PDFs of all his bank statements. I converted all those into Excel spreadsheets. I then uh, created, I, so I had every, a line by line, every bank transaction through his bank on a spreadsheet and then just started organizing it. And obviously the things that are repeating, certain customers, certain vendors, everything, I, I can group that into a pile. And then one by one, all the one-off stuff, figuring out what was that and what that related to. And yet sometimes I'm usually just Googling companies and certainly asking him and talking to him about it. Um, and that was, I was an insane amount of work. And, and part of the reason I did it was I, I probably didn't realize what I was signing up for when I started to do that. Because in theory, I didn't think it was too bad. Um, it was a ton of work. I'm glad I did it. But I understood the business incredibly well. I, I think what kind of, what all those you know, line items were and what, what made that business tick from that perspective incredibly well because of that work. Yeah. Well, I, I love this part of your story, Chad. So let, let's make sure we are really clear with the audience what this is. You get a manila, manila envelope, not filled with, with uh, records. <laughs> it's got it. nothing inside. Just on you know, the back of the envelope, it just <laughs> happens to be a manila envelope, giving you three years of, of financial history. And so you say, okay, um, can you at least give me your bank statements? He gives you 36, uh, roughly, bank statements, one for each month for the last three years in PDF form. And you literally go through line by line on these 36 PDFs 
extract every transaction, put it into a spreadsheet, and you are recreating his books for the last 36 months from scratch. So far, so good? I would do, there are programs online where it'll automatically convert the PDF to, um, to Excel, and then I can do some mm -hmm. formatting. And, and, and you, once you get in a groove of doing that, playing with spreadsheets, you know, there is some, a lot of efficiencies there. But, but yeah, that, that's right. Okay. okay. And, and to be clear, there and were, so, there were mm -hmm. tax returns through this business. They just, it wasn't straightforward or, or helpful in a meaningful way. And, and um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So you've got this. So so you've created this spreadsheet that is for basically the P and L of the last three years, and that's been a tremendous amount of work. How many hours just to get that P and L in front of you? I mean, you're basically doing your own quality of earnings, I guess. That's right. That's right. Um, I, I, I don't know, hundred hours, like a hundred hours, even with these yeah. programs that will slice yeah. and dice the months, PDF into a spreadsheet. It was months of work. Months um, of work. Yeah. Okay. Now the, but at the end of it, you've got this spreadsheet that's 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 the PL of the business, you know, tied right line by line right to the bank statement. So you feel really confident now. And you have uh, a, the best picture of this business better than than the seller himself probably has or understands. Yep. And so I, I love how you put it to me that it, that basically this red flag of the finances being so non-existent uh, or or obfuscated. Yeah. Uh, it turns into this this that you 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 judo whatever jujitsu it into this real strength because going through the hundred hours of work though gives you now this document that you have extremely high visibility granular visibility into the business and really 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 understand it probably better than many of my listeners understand the businesses that they buy mm -hmm. that it in a nutshell I just want to emphasize this process because it's so. fascinating to me I, I think so right I, you know I don't want to speak for what everyone else does. But again, through yeah. the, there there was one there was one guy in my group of friends searchers who who was working off QuickBooks and and everything was there and it looked straightforward and there's a couple of things that didn't add up and it kind of ended up being that thread that once you pull on it yeah I think it a lot of stuff didn't add up or make sense and not that someone's you know purposely obfuscating anything but just a lot as as a common topic a lot of these people have you know I think yeah. You know, accountants or just you know, bookkeepers that are, you know, it's a part-time job or it's not something they had history in doing or they've been doing it for 30 years and, and, and uh, just had never adapted tactics of ways of doing things over time um, mm. and just things miscategorized and, 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 not, and, and not presented right. And so he had discovered like a whole bunch of glaring gaping holes in that process and then having late in the process to start going, doing a lot of what I, the work I had done as well as the when you have to do that, there's that feeling of okay, what else is wrong? What else do I know about? Because you know it, this doesn't get said a lot, but like, and, and maybe I'm biased, and, and and I'm sure there's exceptions, but I think when you look at a business and you look at their financials and you go like, okay, this is what it is, like you haven't caught it. Like whatever business you look at, there's a bunch of hair, there's a bunch of ugly things hiding in the closet that um, that are there that you either see them or you don't, but I promise you they're there. Obviously, yeah. to varying degrees of severity, for sure. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think those things people talk about, you know, behind closed doors of just like, what, what are the skeletons in the, the closet of your business you found? Like, they're there and they're real. Um, and if you can hit them up front and you can address them, I, I think you can kind of go into this with a much more clear head. Not that, you know, there are always going to be surprises when you own a business. Um, 
one of, one of the more interesting things I learned, I found out I was talking to when I was doing my family office coverage, I was talking to a, a prominent family office that does lower middle market PE. And I was asking about the hold period. I was like, you know, are, are you typical PE fund where, you know, your average assets can be five years or, or what have you? Um, and they're like, honestly, I, he's like, I can say this now. He's like, the first year, you don't know what you own until you bought it. You don't know what it is until you own it. And you spend the first year figuring it out. He's like, when you're doing due diligence, no one tells you the CFO doesn't work Fridays. I get conveniently left out. <laughs> like, and, um, and it's true. Like, like you couldn't, you couldn't possibly, especially if you're going to a new industry or a new business, you can, you can research all you want. You can do all due diligence. But until you're operating, you really don't understand what you own and what, what the right levers are to pull in that business. And, um, and, that, and that, that, that's the reality. I, I think people deal with that in the, the large scale more than they'll admit to. But, like, but you, you can, that doesn't mean you can't do good due diligence. That doesn't mean you know, due diligence is worthless. It's very meaningful. Um, it's just, you know, the sooner you can uh, uncover and address whatever skeletons there are or whatever, whatever hair there is, um, then, then you kind of understand your asset better and you're, you're in a better position will be, and there will be less surprises. The thing is what, because we all recognize that these businesses are very, to the point that you, you really can't know everything. You can't diligence away all risk. Um, what we do is we look for proxies or signals. Um, so kind of the classic example is like, if the seller has been, you, you discover that the seller has somehow been dishonest uh, with you or in some other dealings in their business, you don't say to yourself, well, can I get over this lie? You know, because, you know, I can get over it this way, this, this, and this way. No, you should say, well, I should, you should really kind of extrapolate. Well, if they're lying about this, they're probably lying about 10 other things as well. And it, and it you know, it, it, it casts much, a, a much longer shadow. And so I'm not saying your guy was lying. I'm just using that as an example. But yeah. to, to tie it to, to your story, if there's no books and you have to recreate them from scratch, isn't that a signal that there's going to be all sorts of other areas in the business that are similarly undermanaged or, 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 or whatever, or obfuscated or, you know, not up to a standard that is acceptable? Like, isn't that a proxy of something? To a degree, you know, keep in mind, there was nothing, there's, I'll take a step back when a lot of these businesses, when they're started by somebody, you know, the intention was never to create a company. It was, I'm creating a job so I can do this thing. And, and, and it kind of, it usually builds into something greater than they'd ever imagined. And, yeah. and you're kind of, you're, it's almost like you're, you're building a ship as you're, as you're floating away. And yeah. so a lot of it isn't lying or obfuscating. A lot of it is just, this is just how we've evolved. Uh, a lot of it's old practices that made sense a long time ago and changed. Um, yeah. I think when you come from, when you come from you know, the big corporate world, there's 10 people for, you, you know, you don't, only in retrospect, do I realize how bloated those organizations are. And they've got <laughs> all these mad manager, mad, middle managers and people overlook, overseeing anything. You're a small business, like you don't have time to sit there and, and sit through everything. You know, a great example of that is, is um, I don't, I don't really look at my financials right now. I, I, I do my QuickBooks. I, I'm, I'm diligent about that. But you know, I, I have certain friends that sit there and go, okay, what's my PL this month? 
And I don't have time to do that. I don't care to do that. I, I, fortunately, I don't, my, because I have a large equity check and because I've got a very short cash conversion cycle, um, I don't, I, I, I'm privileged to not have to worry about that. But even still from a profitability standpoint, like I, I don't care. I, as long as I'll feel it, if, um, if, if revenue's down a lot, I'll feel it. And if down a lot, I'll feel that too. I'll know that intuitively just by being in the business. But I can only focus on so many different things. I can only focus on so many different processes. I am slowly chipping away at everything, but, but I get it from a small business standpoint of, I think every time we get wrong information and every time we, uh, or something was incorrect or, or feels obfuscated, often the answer isn't you were lied to. Often the answer is that that just wasn't something that they paid attention to a lot or, or they're answering with their gut, which is how half their business was run to begin with. I think it's such a good point, Chad, because, I, and I, a recent guest and I were talking about the same thing um, f- from a slightly different angle, but it's like, as buyers and as people who are trying to be as diligent as we can and, and thinking about the financials in a big way and the, the margin, the SDE, the EBITDA, you know, how the financing is going to work, we're very numbers focused as we sh- should be when dealing with a financial, big financial transaction, the biggest one of most of our lives. Um, and then, and, and then we're mystified that these sellers can't tell us what their margins are or don't know, you know, exactly what their PL looks like last right. month or last year. It's like, what, how do you not know this? This is so, this is the metric to define, you know, how effective your business is. If, if you <laughs> define a, a business point. as something that generates cash. And then, I have no idea how much money I'm and, making. None. Yeah. And, no and then the, the same buyers will get into the business and become owner operators. And just like you, all of that, that th- those financial metrics just all of a sudden drop in ter- on the priority list and maybe completely off the list. And there's so many other things competing for their attention that are more pressing, more important. And frankly, actually bigger picture, actually yeah, yeah. bigger picture. We think the finances are the big picture, but really there are other bigger picture things. And then they, and then they, and, and it's only once they get into the seat, do they understand the owner operators and, and why, the, the sellers and, and why those sellers weren't on top of their, you know, what, what their EBITDA was for the last three years. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, it's funny because people, like, people ask me, someone asked me how much money I make or how I'm doing. I'm like, I don't know, yesterday, you know, $50,000 check came in and I'm like, I'm pretty good. And two days later, I got a $100,000 MX bill to pay. And the swing on my, <laughs> on my bank account. And all I do is look at my bank account and go, like, that's, a, that's a good business. I've got enough buffer. And I, don't, I don't, and I don't look at it and go, oh, I'm making a lot of money. I go, I look at it and go, okay, I've got a good buffer. So when if stuff hits the fan, I'm, I'm going to be, yeah. I, I don't have to be as nervous. Um, and because the reality is I can't forecast what my customers are going to be doing next month or this month or, um, or what product I'm necessarily going to run out of. And, uh, and I've gotten very comfortable with that idea. And that, that's fine. I, I know I'm profitable. I know what my margins are. And, and I've developed a, a, a pretty good model for how I should be pricing everything to make it make sense. So on a deal by deal basis, I get it. But on a macro scale, like money's flying in and out and it's net net going up. But yeah, you know, a lot of times up to back one. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I, I know directionally it's working out okay, and, and that's fine. All I can do is put my head down and go, okay, what are the things I need to do to make this a better business? And if I feel myself outperforming if, and I'll know right away because we're just going to be incredibly busy, I know I can start investing in my business a little bit. And if we're down a little bit, I still know what I need to do. If we're down a lot, okay, I need to start taking dramatic uh, 
steps to to stem the bleeding. Uh, but the reality is, I feel that it, it just I'm here. I, it's an aura. I know how busy people are. I see the orders coming in, and I intuitively know right away. And that's not yeah. something I've held day one. But when you do this for six to twelve months, I hit I hit a year next month. Um, you, you do start to feel that. Well, let, let, and let me actually press on this point that we're both agreeing on, and 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 maybe and and maybe see if we're actually wrong. Um, because you, you're still in the throes, basically of trans. I mean, you're you, you know you're into it. You're you're kind of on the other side of your transition, but you're still new into this business. Mm-hmm. Is there a time, maybe at the end of three years or five years, or maybe when the business has grown and you have kind of a management layer, where you should actually return to uh, real having much tighter financial visibility? And you should know your margins and your EBITDA and your or your SDE and everything have that stuff really dialed in on the tip of your tongue. Um, it, yeah, may, maybe maybe a, a a more valuable business and a more mature business you can and should have that those numbers at the ready. It's just when you're it's still messy and small and you're in your transition, you're not quite there yet. Well, I, I would certainly caveat that I, I do have friends that have businesses where, the, where because the cash conversion cycle is much longer and because of um, you know, having you know, higher, higher leverage ratio, that cash flow is a much tighter concern. And, and those yeah. people should, for sure should be on top of that. You're going mm-hmm. to get crushed if, if you don't. Um, so, mm-hmm. so again, part of this is the privilege of, of my circumstances. Um, yeah. With that, uh, I mean, maybe it, 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 to the question of in the future, should I pay more attention to this stuff? Maybe. But at the end of the day, I've got limited time. And, and if I can spend time making a sales call or making sure orders get up quicker so we can take on more orders or negotiating with a vendor to get you know, better pricing, um, I'm probably going to do those things over staring at a spreadsheet. Now, do yep. over time, will I look at a little more? Yeah, sure. And, and I am diligent about I do my own bookkeeping. Um, it was really tough to set up, but once I get used to it, actually, I don't spend a tremendous amount of time doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I can pull up those reports, but like, I look at it and I can go, oh, you know, I've spent more on fragrance this month or wax this month. The reality is, is like, there's probably a reason for that, and and I can go spend time dig into it. And yeah, mistakes can happen, and there's issues I should be aware of. But I, I think right now I'm so involved in my business that most of what happens, I, it, it's a little bit more intuitive from me and. The managing by spreadsheet thing makes a ton of sense when when you're working for a big company, but and when you're when you're in it, um, it's tough. Very well said, Chad. Thank you. I want to get to the transition because there's a lot to say there, and 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 what ownership has felt like and, and looked like. But just to just to close out the actual acquisition, you have here deal fatigue, and you've already yeah. told us that you know this was a long and evolving process of about you know of many many months to get this thing across the finish line. What do you want to say about, you know, your emotional state during this long slog of a, of a deal? It's tough. I mean, uh, you know, one important thing in any search or journey is the decision of, are you going to quit your job to do this or are you going to do it at the same time you have your job? And, uh, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to that. It, it's, it's circumstantial. Everyone, what their financial situation is, what their work situation is. I, I was working while I did this so that I did this part time and in my mind, I was like, okay, work's a little bit light right now and, and searching didn't feel like a full-time job. The difficulty was that, you know, you might 
in theory, let's say, you know, this wasn't the case, but let's say you've got 12, you're doing 20 hours a week searching and 20 hours a week during your day job, you go, it's 40 hours, that's fine. The reality is all those things have a habit of, of overlapping. You know, that, that, th those, those important work calls tend to have at the exact same time you've got the important calls with you know, a seller of a business and, and it gets mm -hmm. really tricky. Um, and that's really stressful. Um, and of course, when you quit full time to, and go full time to look for a business, that's stressful because every day you don't have a business is a day you're spending money and not making money. And, and it does feel like a, you know, sand dripping through the, through the hourglass a little bit. So, uh, and in my group, we were split, you know, half of us were, were, were searching while working. The other half were quit their jobs to do it. Um, and that's its own, that in and of itself, it's his own unique stress. Um, my deal died five times, probably we, we hit a wall and we just, okay, let's walk away from this. And then a couple of weeks later, we'd be like, Hey, you know, how about this? And again, in my career, all the great deals, those hairy deals, they tend to die and you kind of have to let them die a little bit. And if it's a good deal, it'll come back to you in a way. Um, yeah. and, and I've seen that happen so many times and if it's a bad deal, it'll stay gone. Um, yeah. it should be, it'll stay dead if you want it to. Um, yeah. but, um, going through that process, you know, it's, it's stressful. Um, in theory, you, when you do due diligence, you go, okay, you go to your cell and say, okay, I want all these items given to me. And they're like, I'll give you half of this and I'm going to trickle it into you a little bit every week over the next month. And that seems to be a common theme. It's just getting the information, the data. Um, much of which you're not going to get because they never had it and, and pulling it's harder to do than you think. Um, and so, you know, I, I've got, I'll, I'll get, okay, last year's um, bank statements. Cool. I'll work on that. And then here, here's the first three months of two years ago. And, and then a couple weeks later, here's the last three months of two years ago. And, and here's a couple from two, three years ago, by the way, I'm still working. On it. I'll get back to you. And um, the old, he had a, he had a small local bank and they, um, at a certain point, they didn't give PDFs. You had to get, they would mail you a copy. So I literally wow. had to take copies of bank statements, scan them, convert them to PDF, and then convert them into Excel. And it was just time consuming and it was tiring. And you forget, you get, it, it, you know, luckily I, didn't, I wasn't working on uh, multiple deals, but you, you confuse deals really easy and um, things you're told that seemed crystal clear and you understood a month ago, suddenly you forget. You're like, wait a minute, is, are all these expenses from this thing or did this happen, this thing? I forget why I said there was a spike in payroll this month and how important it is to keep incredibly detailed notes. I think that was one of the things I learned in my previous career is having a self spreadsheet and, and just being overly diligent with everything you write down, all the questions you have, all the data you got and you still need and the organization of that will make your life incredibly better um in, in the process but ultimately it's tiring you know after i said this negotiation for this deal was you know over nine months and um it was brutal you know and, and it once you, once you pass you are know, working on something for six months and you see it die and just say okay everything you did was a waste yeah worthless on yeah. the next one and there's people who will say like yep i'm just i've got the mentality like on the next one i don't believe them <laughs> like that, that crushes you, you you have to, you, um, uh, you, you know, you, you know, the people I feel like who are really good at what they do, you know, tend to be pretty passionate about what they do and pretty into it. And, and when you give so much of yourself to that process or something and it fails, like you know, a little part of you dies in that moment. Um, yeah. and again, so I, I had that network of friends to lean on and, 
you know, yeah. I'll say uh, everyone talks about this SMB thing as you know, you you make a big financial decision and you put your life savings into it, and and it's huge, and maybe you can go bankrupt. But but the important thing is the the friends you make along the way. That's why we really mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Not really, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it helps. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so so you but you do get it across the finish line, mm -hmm. and and remind us the size of the business, the, the yeah, kind of uh, when, when I bought revenues and yeah, sales were sorry. you know just under three million. Um, you know what I found out was um, you know the business had was booming during COVID. Um, yeah, obviously, home goods, candles, you know, people were buying, and it was a peak for the industry. Um, it's funny because everyone. Everyone talks about being scared about businesses are like, okay, how did they do during COVID? And that's, that's a bad sign if they didn't do well. To me, I was scared of businesses that did really well during COVID. Because if you're doing incredibly well during COVID, what happens when COVID's gone? Yeah. Uh, so um, as on top of the stress, this whole deal, you know, sales are actually going down as, as we're negotiating it. Um, and that, you know, you don't know why, you know, there are three things at play. Um, one, we're coming out of COVID. So this would have been like, or yeah. Thing, that COVID bump had slowed down, we'll say, uh, across yep. all industries. Uh, so this would be middle of 2022. Um, you know, combine that with uh, the Ukraine war had started ramping up. There's a lot of skittishness economically. And lastly, you know, what I, I had read, and this makes a lot of sense to me, is that toward the end, sellers kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit. Yeah, you know, once they see, you know, the you know, that island they're retiring to hypothetically or wherever, and, and you know, you, you're not as focused on the business, so you will see a little bit of pullback. So all those things. And so, you know, there's a couple of bad months in there and you go, okay, is this a blip on the radar? Or is this real? And, and yeah. you don't know. And that was really tricky. Um, How'd you solve it? Or did, did you not? You just kind of leap of faith it. I, I think that was one of the things that allowed me to leverage to get a to get a higher seller note, um, and yeah, you know, pretty favorable terms uh, on on the seller note. Uh, I wanted seven years, he wanted four years, um, and I said, okay, I'll pay you in four years, but there's a seven year amortization, so I'm paying as if it's a seven year loan, mm -hmm. and but and then once I hit year four, I have to pay you the remaining balance, which which is mm -hmm. you know, much smaller, and that was a good happy medium and. I talked to a lot of searchers who hadn't thought of something like that. They get stuck on the whole, like, I want seven, you want four. And there's actually a way to split the baby to a degree. Um, yeah. And so that's, that goes back to kind of my structuring background experience of, of thinking about the, these, these things through that, that helped a lot. And, and that I, it was one of those things where we both wanted something and there was, there's, there was a way to get us both what we wanted. Well, another technique to have addressed that seems like a forgivable part uh, of the seller note or, you know, or some in escrow that you could claw back if, if the business didn't perform. Did you consider any of that stuff sort of business had to perform to a, a, a particular historical norm for him to get all his money? Two, two things I would have done differently. I would, it's not forgivable. I would have put in, in a forgivable element. I probably could have renegotiated. I probably should have tried to renegotiate the price a little bit. I think by, by the end when I realized like, okay, there's a 15% pullback, um, that's really, I, I should be renegotiating. I use that as leverage across the board on, on, on a lot of I, uh, items. But my feeling at the time was the seller was so pegged to this number. And anytime it was like a, it was like a third rail for him. Anytime we talked price, he was like, absolutely not. Um, and I, I think he would have, he, he just would have walked, but insulted by it. 
Um, but looking back on it, I think there was ways, again, there's, there's ways I'm really happy with that structure and I, I was really proud of myself and thoughtful. And there's ways I think I didn't, I, I don't, I think I could have done better. And that was one of them is making, making the seller note forgivable one. And two, um, I think if, if I had, if, if I come to him and just say, hey, listen, business makes the most money, you're getting less price, I think he would have poo-pooed that pretty quickly. But I think if I, if I, if I had been creative about how, how to help him think through that and, and, and ways around that, we probably could have found out something. But the reality is, if I'm being 100% honest, like you're working on a deal for seven, eight months, like you're, you're, I, I was fried. I was fried. I was like, let's just get this thing done. I was still confident it was a good business. I, I still really liked what I saw. I was still getting at a, at a, at a relatively low multiple. Uh, I just said, you know what, like, let's, let's not, I don't want to lose a deal again on, on something like this where ultimately I'm still happy with the business. And so sales were under 3 million, just under 3 million and SDE was approaching a million and he, you had said that he, the purchase price he wanted was 3 million. So you're in a, just over three X multiple. It was less than that. Cause we, he originally wanted the real estate included. I took out the real estate. Ah. One, one of the things I <laughs> I, I got creative with is I, I got a, I pretty much have a call option on the real estate. So for the next five years, I can buy it at a fixed price. So the price I can buy for today, I have that price is still valid for up to five years where most people they'll negotiate a, um, of right of first refusal. So if the person wants to sell it, they get the option to, to, to overbid who's ever there. But I, I have a fixed price. I, I can, at any point I can buy for that price. No one else can take it from me. Um, so if I, if, wow. if I want to keep it. So again, going back to liver, little leverage points, I did apply with, with every, with kind of economic condition, I, I was able to get value out of it for certain. Yeah. And that price for the real estate that you were negotiated, what was the price that you negotiated? Basically the, the market price of that real estate today? Yeah, pretty much. Um, maybe even, honestly, I think it was a decent price. It may have even been below. Um, you know, uh, it, it, I, I think it, uh, that, that would have been 700K, but obviously without seeing the property, that means that won't mean anything to anyone. Um, but uh, so um, it, the price I'm happy with, and if I'm not happy with it, then I don't buy it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right. no, it's great. Um, so one of the things, one of the huge stresses we have now is we're actually running out of space. So as much as I like the place and it's good, we, you know, we, we might outgrow it and we don't have the ability to expand. Um, so crazy enough, what I can do is I can actually, I can sell the property before I own it. I can find a buyer, so using round numbers, someone, someone wants to buy for a million. Okay, oh great, at close I do a buy sell. I never owned it and I still make that benefit from having owned it when I sell it. Yeah, well, I mean, exactly. So if you have this call option on a piece of real estate for five years, not to sound naive, but it you know seems realistic that it'll appreciate somewhat in the next five years. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the five years, even if you don't want the real estate, if it's, it's still available to you at under market, you just essentially flip it. Um, yeah. You have basically a, the, the ability to flip it at any, any point you want. That's right. Very interesting deal. So, and the number was about 700. So the purchase price of the business was about 2.3? 4, 2.4. 2.4, great. Okay. Well, Chad, we um, are, uh, I'm just paying attention to time here. And we haven't gotten into any of the adventure of running this business. <laughs> We're not going to be able to get to all of it, but but there's a lot of important stuff for people to hear about the transition. So let's get into it. Start start us wherever you want. What what is something you really want the audience to know about what your transition looked like? 
Um, I, I think it was one thing I, I didn't mention about my process is I convinced him to let me work in the business for a number of days yes. during the search. Yeah. Um, and he agreed to it. And, you know, it was kind of one of those audacious asks where um, I was just like, hey, let me, can I work there for a day? Let me just like, I'll, I'll literally put me in the assembly line. I'll just work and just tell people I'm a guy, <laughs> you know? Um, and we did that. And I ended up doing that for, you know, probably a total of, you know, seven, eight days throughout the process, just sporadically. Um, and uh, obviously people were, you know, hey, who is this guy? What's he doing here? I think he told him I was a potential investor, maybe, um, you know, to, to part of the business or might be joining in a more senior position. Uh, and I actually got to the look and feel, and I think most importantly is interact with the employees. And I think that was a huge thing because I was really happy with the staff and the employees. Um, the, the one funny thing is after I closed, I was talking to somebody. I'm like, yeah, everyone, everyone was super quiet when I was there and I'm realizing they're not now. And it didn't occur to me that like, when <laughs> I was there, I got a different version of everyone. Everyone's like, everyone didn't know if I was a spy or what I was. And everyone was really quiet and worked very hard. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they, they still do to be clear, just less quiet. Um, so, uh, but, but re really good people, good staff, uh, for the most part. Um, and so coming into it day one, I think probably one of the things that, that gets underappreciated is employees have no idea what this means. When a business gets sold, you know, they don't, they don't follow any M&A activity. They've never been through this. They, they don't know if they're going to get fired or what that means at all. And I think a lot of people just assume like I'm coming in and everything's going to be the same. And you can say that, uh, but they might not necessarily believe it. So I did spend a lot of time, you know, day one saying, Hey, listen, this is this walking through my own journey. This is why I'm here. This is what I did. I bought this business because of you all, not because I think I can get better people than you. I don't think I can, but I need you to help me build this, to help me do this. Uh, and, and you guys are a big part of the reason I bought this. So yeah, help me do this. And I think it was very well received and it made a lot of sense. And I put a lot of people at ease because people definitely, I did get like back when that in the, initially once it was originally announced that people thought like, okay, our job's gone. Or what does this mean? Um, yeah. Now you will inherit any problems. You know, people unhappy with salary, or people who you know any frictions that took place. Like they're there when you inherit it. I, I've talked with a lot of people. Very common. You know, for day one, but certainly first week, you're going to have employees say, "Can I have a race?" Yeah. And you need to be prepared for that. And I think the best thing to do is you can deflect and just say, "Hey, listen." My goal is to take care of everyone. I need to figure out this business and what's going on first. Give me some time and buy yourself some time and figure out what we want to do. Um, but, but it does, a lot of people are shocked when literally day one, you know, I, someone was met in the parking lot and just said, like, I need a raise. I need you to do this. Um, and you're just, you don't realize how beholden you are to employees at this point in your, you don't, you don't understand the business. You, you've just bought it. You, you realize that all these employees could walk out right now and I go bankrupt. Yep. You know, and, and you feel it <laughs> and, and it's terrifying. Um, so, uh, be prepared for that. Uh, th those tough conversations. Um, I did have well, th mm -hmm. that. That's what's so interesting about that, about the dynamic, because we as buyers feel really, yeah, like you said, a bit terrified that, you know, everybody could just walk out or three key people could quit or what have you. And so you feel really, uh, reliant on the employees. And, and sometimes to the point that 
we forget that they also are feeling fear that they're going to be let go or that what what does this mean? Mm -hmm. So there's kind of like mutual suspicion and and, and mutual fear. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a healthy fear because you because you really are reliant on these people, and there are stories of people um, leaving. Maybe not day one, but you know there there are horror stories, including guests on this podcast, uh, <laughs> and 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 certainly the raise thing that comes up a lot. And so, by the way, Chad, do you would you advise people to say as part of their day one speech, no raises? I mean, you would you would <laughs> you would you would say it much more delicately than that. But I've heard that being a technique, like there's going to be no, there's going to be no payment change or compensation changes, salary changes for six months. And just saying that not as, not reactively when somebody approaches you for a raise, but actually saying it as part of your speech, would you, would that have gone over well, do you think, or, or at least would that have been tolerated as a way to kind of keep people at bay? It would have worked for my method because you know I walked in there and I just wanted just energy and positivity. And a part of your yeah. message is, "Hey, we're going to be awesome. So much energy. We're going to let's let's do some great things." And and you don't affect the race. Like I, I think that would have totally that would have totally. diluted the message a little bit or left a sour taste. So um, okay. <laughs> again, for me, I, I was fortunate that I, I wasn't approached, but I've talked to enough people that it's very common. Um, oh, you were not. So nobody came to you asking for a raise. I misunderstood. Not right away. Uh, people, okay. <laughs> as a business owner, people will uh, always come for raises. But, but I was fortunate enough that people didn't come to me. But most people I talked to, that seemed to be a really common thing. Um, okay. So, but just keeping that in mind as you go through it. And again, that's, that just goes through the group I had of friends uh, talking about what we've all experienced and and. and 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 because I had, I had heard that I was I was prepared for that, yeah. If it were to happen, one of the things that you have here, Chad, is that in retrospect, you were so concerned with the wrong things <laughs> in the first three months post close, and you wasted a lot of precious time and effort. What were you so concerned about uh, to erroneously? I think you know. Um, a big topic in buying a business is how and when do you make changes to a business? Yep. And uh, you, in a way, you can, I, you always heard this thing like, don't make any changes for the first three, six, nine, 12 months. Um, and I think you have to make certain changes because a lot of how a business operates is particular to that owner. So that owner maybe did a lot of things that didn't necessarily make sense, you know, weren't right or wrong, but just that was how they thought or how they wanted to go about their day. And the, and maybe there's certain things they like to start the day with, certain things they like to end a day with. And I don't like to do that. And I want to change that order um, or how I like to file things or, or whatever. And there's a million of those little things that um, if you don't make that change, it's going to be confusing for you. Um, but when I started, I was like, okay, first thing I want to do is make key OP, KOPs. I want key operating procedures. I want to write down everything everyone does and we're good. That seems really practical. Um, I realized after a week that that wasn't going to happen. Like it was just getting in the way of me learning it and operating it. Uh, I, I think what's really in, what's burned into me is when I took over the business, it was, it was September. It was the beginning of the holiday season. So busiest time of the year for us. I'm stepping in the shoes. I'm learning out of business at the business time of year and trying to make changes. Um, I, I just, um, there's some changes I needed to make, but looking back on it, um, I think focusing on the, again, the key operating procedures, the formalities of it, 
of you know, didn't make sense actually. Um, I just needed to learn and understand the business. Um, a lot of micro changes for sure. Um, and, and truthfully, like there's some things that are a blur. I remember spending a lot of time on things that uh, didn't make sense looking back on it. And I don't remember them because the first three months, um, I loved it. It was amazing, but I, I got so burnt out. Um, I was so gung ho about it. You know, I was, it's funny. It's, it's actually almost embarrassing to say this, but I, I was, I was probably doing 15 hour days. Um, started coming on the weekends a little bit. Uh, and then realized if I want to maintain my family in one piece, I can't do that. Um, but it was so busy. There's so much to do. And I, I was enjoying it, loving it. But I remember saying to myself, um, okay, if I, if I, as I get burnt out, once I get burnt out, I'll pull back. Uh, and in retrospect, that was a really bad idea because once you get burnt out, it's too late. You're already, you're already burnt out. That's not a switch you just turn off. Um, so by the year end, um, you know, but by the year end, I, I was toast. I, I, I'd been, I had been working so hard and I thought coming into this that, you know, hey, I've, I worked in banking. I did real estate on the side. I'm an active runner. I've got three kids. Like I know busy better than almost anyone. And mm. it's just different. Like when you're on your feet moving pallets and you're running around and you're worried your business is going to go bankrupt just because anything can happen. Um, and every day you were just making mistakes and learning. Like it, it was, it was really tough and really exhausting. Um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done by a long shot. It's the, one of the things I'm most proud of. I love it. I wouldn't change it for a second, but how hard, you know, actual hard work. I, I, I was shocked. I was shocked. But it sounds like you're in retrospect, you're saying that you didn't need to work that hard. It was kind of by choice um, that you, that you were working that hard. So, yeah. So it was, um, the re the reason, and I saw this, I, when, when I bought, one of the reasons I want to buy the business is, you know, you, you look at things, you go, okay, I can optimize that. I can make that better. One of the things was, you know, the seller was doing two or three people's jobs and it's like, okay, great. I'll just hire for that. Did I fully appreciate, you know, like the friction that causes that, that you want to hire, you want, you want to learn it yourself before you hire someone to do it. One, two, the timing it takes to hire somebody uh, and get the right person and then train them. And then when you're in the middle of busy season, you don't have time to do that. I, 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 I got to do that in off season. Um, so did I need to work as hard? No. Did I need to work incredibly hard? Yes. Um, I think. One thing I learned is one of the biggest takeaways I learned is that, you know, ideas on how to run this business, things we can do. I have an infinite list. And I'm, I'm actually really confident they would all work. Ideas are easy. It's, it's timing um, and the effort they take. So for every idea I've had, it's taken four times longer to do and had way less of an impact. I'm glad I did them and they needed to be done. But just everything is time consuming and, and there is no panaceas. There's nothing I'm aware of or have been able to do yet that's been like a game changer. Things have added up to I'm really proud of our business, the processes we've done, the, the small changes. But a lot of them were just throwing change in a bucket and watching it add up over time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it took a lot of time to do that. I think my favorite example is I walked in. We, have, we carry 150 fragrances um, on a wall and they're not in alphabetical order. You just work here and you know it. And you ask somebody where the <laughs> lavender fragrance is, they go, they go uh, fourth shelf from the bottom, fourth from the left. And you go, okay, 
And then you do that and you're like, this is crazy. I need to organize this. And then it took forever to organize it. And, and, and I got employee pushback. I'm just like, they're like, no, we know, we know where everything is. Don't mess with that. And that was like one thing I didn't appreciate is like, no, no, this makes sense. It's alphabetical order. I'm confident you guys know the alphabet and then you'll be able to grab it. They're like, yeah, but like every employee could grab one without looking. Literally, they would, they, their hand would go out and they'd grab it. And I ruined all of that for them. And, uh, and the reality is, is I, ch- I alphabetized it. It was a good move. It needed to make sense so new people can come in. And, and, and mistakes were happening occasionally from people not looking at what they were grabbing. But the actual, imp- it, it was better. We're a better company for it, but actually not as much as I would have thought. Because now everyone has to think about where they grab it. And they can't get used to it because when we add a new fragrance in, it shifts all of them down the line. And they, and so when they were used to every, without looking and grabbing everything, everything's moved every time we got a new fragrance because that changes Ah. the order. And so it actually, we're slightly, that seemingly obvious change, we're actually slightly slower because of it. Um, Yeah. But it needed to happen and it made sense. But I got a ton of pushback from employees at first. Um, So that, that little example times that by a thousand my first three months of just, <laughs> hey, here's a really obvious thing we should do. No, don't do it. Please, like, like you trust me, give me a shot. Okay, I did it. It took forever to do. It worked, but actually not nearly as much as I thought it would. And that, that was yeah. that every day for three months. It's t- till today, till a year, almost a year later. Yeah. Well, and, and that, chat is why they say don't, don't make changes because you often don't understand yet the ripple effects of making those changes. That's right. And, and, it's, it's and you true. don't understand that there's often like a method to the madness. And so I guess yeah. the method to this madness was, you know, having all of the fragrances out of any sort of order was because what the, the good news there was when you added a new fragrance, it didn't screw, screw up the order of the 150 you already had. So there was, you, you know, you, it, it sounds like it's there's, probably better in the long term to have an alpha, alphabetical order, but there was some method to the madness and you just couldn't have known that until longer in the business or until making the change and having it bite you in the butt a little bit. That's right. I, I think when you, when, when, I, when you come into the business, you look at certain things and you just see chaos. And there's kind of three different types of those, of those, of those reasons those happen. One is because that process used to make sense and it no longer does. Mm. Two... It actually does make sense. You just don't realize it yet <laughs> because it, it's maybe it's a bad process, but it's the best of all the bad solutions. Yeah. Or, or three, um, that's just a preference of the former owner. Uh, and you have no idea which one it is. And you almost won't learn until you mess with it. <laughs> like, you have to now the timing of when you mess with it and how you mess with it, completely different situation. But um, it, the, the, I, I think I was surprised by a lot of things I looked at from the outside that looked like chaos and didn't make any sense. And then when I dug, when I dug in and tried to mess with it, I realized that, okay, there's, there's a reason for this. Um, yeah. yeah. Chad, I want to ha- make sure we have time just to learn a little bit about the candle manufacturing industry and business. So before we get into that, is there anything else just about the journey uh, and kind of, you know, being meta about your whole adventure here that you want to make sure that we share with the audience? Yeah, listen, I, I think um, it, it, everything is harder than it looks. Um, I don't think it's for everyone, um, but for the people it is for, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change this for the world. You know, I, I've, I feel so much more in control of my destiny. I feel so much more fulfilled with what I do. 
Uh, I'm a lot prouder of what I do. Uh, and owning a business, it's, it's something that I've always felt that um, I wanted to do. And, and, and I get all the joy I thought I would. And it's incredibly difficult and hard and soul-crushing some days. Um, not soul-crushing is the wrong word, but, but, um, but uh, you know, we, all, we still all had bad days, but I love it. Um, but just you know, build a network, talk to people, reach out. Uh, and I think uh, asking a lot of questions and learning from people's experiences is great. And I, I, I learned a lot from these podcasts, for sure. Um, that, that, I think that's how I learned. And for, for me, that was, that was the most valuable thing. Oh, well, fantastic, Chad. I'm thrilled to hear that. Uh, and, and let me ask you, how does, how does your family react to, to dad now as a, as a small business owner versus a corporate guy? Um, what, are your, what do your kids think? What does your wife think? Oh, I, my kids are eight, seven, and three. And so them running around a candle factory and you know, getting to play with wax, they love it. Um, they make a mess every time they're here and they ride the pallet jack and all, all those things. So <laughs> they love it. Uh, they see less of me. Um, especially what's weird is after, during COVID, you know, I worked a lot, but I was working from home for a lot of it. And yeah. um, now they saw an extreme change. That probably would have happened anyway, but but nonetheless. So yeah, they definitely miss me a lot. I miss them a lot more. Um, but uh, I, I think it's I, I think it's good. I, I think you know, setting expectations with your family, you know, with your wife, and and making sure with with your partner uh, that they fully understand what you're going through um, and and what your intentions are and how this ends up. It, it's impacts your family a lot. And, and again, that's one of the things people don't talk about is um, we talk about the stress of going through this process and also the financial risks of going through this process. You know, how you, how you work through that with your partner who's clearly you know, um, an important part of this is really important and making sure you're on the same page. And, and did you um, anticipate being away from the family as you are now? And so was this something that you kind of for lack of a better word, pre-negotiated with your partner? I had like, no idea. Yeah. Um, my, no. my wife certainly did. I had no idea I'd be working as much as I am. Now, to be fair, I'm pulling it back. I'm not working 15-hour days anymore, maybe once or twice a week. And I, I, I make an effort to leave early to take my kids to practice once a week, for instance, and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And I, I am getting better at delegating things to my team, so, so I'm freeing that up. Uh, but to get to that point was really, really difficult. Um, and so... Um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I didn't know how hard this was going to be or how many hours I was going to work. Um, previous to buy a business, I'd spoken to another owner and he told me, I asked him how many hours he worked and he goes, I'm embarrassed to say this. And I remember being like, why are you embarrassed to say that you work a lot of hours? We certainly work in a culture that, you know, like brags about the hours we work. And that's like, yeah. a, you know, it's, it's kind of contest in a way sometimes, but I felt that shame and embarrassment with how many hours I work because it made me feel like ineffective. And hey, buddy, you bought a business so you can be free and you can do what you want. And now you're a slave to that business. Um, so, so there is a, there's a, there was a surprising, a little bit of shame working that many hours and feeling like I was doing it wrong. But again, talking to a ton of business owners and they, a lot of them went through that. It was very common was, was made me feel a lot better. And, um, the promise to my wife that slowly I'm going to work less and less hours. Um, it, it works. It, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold to it. That's great, Chad. That's so valuable for people out there with, with kids and a family who are, who are doing this. And actually on this point about family, you make a, you make kind of a, a comparison in your notes here, um, to being a father. You say consistency, no panaceas, like raising a child, 
expecting to do one thing right in neglect in neglecting other areas will not end well. Uh, you're, and you're referring now to management, but comparing it to parenting. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, one of the reasons I, you know, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons I wanted to not have any investors or, or, or partners is because I can, I've got no, I'm under no timeline of when I can sell this business. You know, people ask me all the time, do you want to sell it? Do you want to, you know, do you want to step away? What do you, what's your plan? You want to do this forever? The answer is I have no idea and I don't need to know. I can figure that out. But, yeah. but regardless, you know, I'd like to hold this for as long as I can and, and do this. And, um, and if I, I can try to do this one big thing that will revolutionize the business and, and it probably won't, uh, I need to be mindful of being able to come in every day and perform and be consistent. And that in, involves not overdoing it any particular day, week, month, year. Um, obviously, listen, we're going to have days, we're going to have to step it up quite a bit. But um, if you like uh, my Q4 last year, I, I go overworked. I got burnt out. You know, January, February, I was toast, and and I wasn't able to perform. Um, I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. Where otherwise, con again, consistency. You know, of just trying to do um, a little bit of everything and be and um, every day get a little bit better. Because uh, otherwise, if I'm trying to do front load all of it, I'm going to fail, and then or even if I'm successful, I'm going to be burnt out and not be able to do anything after that. Okay, Chad. Well, let's close out with just a quick um, tutorial on yeah. the candle manufacturing business. Uh, I said to you in our pre-call that um, candles seemed like a like it would be a really competitive uh, and difficult business because I feel like they're making candles is something that a lot of people start as or you know as a hobby uh, or kind of as a crafty person to do an Etsy store. Uh, and I, yeah. I referred, I referred to uh, an, an old uh, episode of The Office where Michael Scott's girlfriend Jan or Jan um, starts a, starts a candle business, um, and and so it you know in a business where the barriers to entry are low, it attracts people who who are passionate. You know, al always a always a red flag when you're in a business competing with people who are just passionate about it. That's right. One of the reasons we, one of the reasons we avoid restaurants. Um, uh, and you know, I would think this is my naivete, but I would I would think a, a a a product, a commoditized product, one where it's hard to differentiate. For all those reasons, it strikes me as is something like a hard business. Um, so tell us, react to that, and and tell us what you know about the candle making industry. Yeah, I would put candle manufacturers in three buckets. You know, I think the first bucket is the one you described. So like the Etsy at home people making their own candles and and. Almost everyone starts out to that degree. Um, then you have the high end, uh, you know, the, the mega producers and manufacturers who are making for like the nests and maybe doing some for Yankee or any major candle. And they're full automation. They've got massive machines and warehouses. And you know, unless you want 5,000 or 10,000 of a single candle fragrance, like they won't take your call. And mm. we sit in the in-between where um, I think we offer the selection uh, and and closer to pricing that the high end guys will do, but we still have lower minimums. So they're you, on the on the lower and the Etsy ones. They they're great at customization. They can do some really interesting things. You know, there's certainly uh, you know, a certain degree of love in every candle that they're hand making, but that's not scalable. Um, yep. The customizability, or you know, you wouldn't go to any of those people to get 
you know, certainly several dozen problems, maybe, but over that, uh, once you get in the hundreds, certainly thousands, they're not going to be uh, able to compete with that at all. Um, and certainly not what we offer is we carry, you'll see behind me, I've got two dozen different candle vessels. You know, we, you can come to us, we're a one-stop shop. We have any, all the vessels you want. We have the wax, we have 150 different fragrances, lids, boxes, and we'll do labels. And you can have your entire brand designed here. Um, so we work for a number of notable uh, international hotels, um, some sense you've probably experienced. Uh, we have a number of online retailers, resellers, um, and you know, boutiques across the board. And people just want to start their own candle brand, um, and even some mid-sized candle brands we've we've worked with. And um, and where we stand out is we do have lower minimums than, than the big guys because those again they won't talk to you at five thousand. But we can do more than the the ultra passionate hobby people. Uh, they, they just don't have the equipment, the machinery, the experience to do what we do. Um, we do have a few competitors, but I think where we're unique is our inventory, uh, to do all this. Um, mm -hmm. it's funny. We, one of the things that, one of the chaos things we talk about that made sense is we are, um, we're, we're, if you Google private label candle manufacturer, we're one of the, one of the first organic hits. We, we used to be you know, two, one or two. I think we slipped to three or four, but, um, and our website is completely a little bit of chaos is our web is our website. There's a lot going on. It's still one of the projects I have to clean it up and fix it up. But I didn't realize those two things are linked is because our website's a little bit of chaos. We've got a lot of pages. You have to click on a lot of different spaces. You have to bounce around a lot to do that. It's one of those things that helps drive the metrics um, that people are on your site for longer and are clicking through your site more. And therefore, um, we, we show up higher on the organic when you Google us. And it's one of those things that on the surface I would have fixed. I would have said like, hey, um, uh, you know, let's clean up the site, let's simplify it. I'm still looking to do that, but I have to be much more strategic like that because it will impact the Google ratings. That being said, at this point, uh, people do find us online uh, and we've been getting a lot of inbounds, but a lot of it's word of mouth. I, I think what we do is a little more unique than than probably people realize in, in what we can offer at the scale we can offer at the price we can offer. Fascinating. And Chad, since you're a private label manufacturer, so these, let's call it hotel chains or or, or um, whomever, I, I don't know, some, some other brands want to have their own candles with their names on them mm -hmm. uh, that they give away or sell or what, what have you. How do you generate new sales? Because this seems like, like, how do you find a new brand that may want to, but hasn't yet um, decided to release their own line of candles? Like there's no, that's kind of an invisible itch. So how do you, how do you go finding those folks so you can scratch that itch for them? Do, am I making sense? Perfect. Um, you know, I, like a lot of other people, so I saw the business, you know, saw that, okay, there's no marketing here. There's no sales and they're doing quite well. Now, what happens mm. when you add marketing and sales? And that's a common thesis I see with a lot of businesses. And we all laugh about it now because the, the, the reason no one, there's no sales or marketing is no one thought about it is because you're so buried with your day-to-day. -day. It is incredibly hard to do. And, yeah. um, and, and so I, and I have, yeah, it took, me, it took me six to nine months to really find time to do any type of marketing and sales whatsoever. I, I was just reacting. Um, and now I'm able to do it. And I think... Uh, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot of direct marketing outreach myself and I just, I'll call up companies and just say, why don't, why don't, you know, 
you have candles, why aren't you working with us? This is what we can do. Or why don't you have a candle line? Um, and working with people who uh, are existing customers and saying, why aren't we, what more can we do for you? We also do yeah. diffusers, room sprays, body sprays as well. So there's a number of complimentary products uh, we offer. Um, and but but Chad, give me an example of of the t a type of business that you'd call who doesn't have a candle line, and you call them and say you should. Like who is that? Just ba basically like another hotel uh, chain, for example. I, I'd say where we've had the most success, our sales were the most success where people already had candles. But uh, I, I think we could we we call them and say who's doing your candles? Um, why? You know, mm. Talk me through. Uh, here's what we can do more. And a lot of times there's something they dabbled in that maybe they're dealing with this smaller Etsy style uh, business that, and we have, we have machinery, we can produce a lot more of a lot of experience uh, and probably more going to be more price competitive. Um, and then that's compelling to them. They say, okay, great. You can do, you can do even more than our current customer, our provider can, and you're cheaper. Um, so th there's that element. Uh, the other element is okay. a lot of people carry other people's candles. So it's people who have candles, but it's not their candles. They'll have other brands. Ah. Why don't, you know, you can have your own brand customized ah. to your own store, company, brand, whatever it is. And you know, your margins will be better. And it's a product you designed specifically for this space. I think that's really compelling as well. Well, Chad, anything that we haven't said? I mean, there are things we haven't said because I'm looking at our list here. Yeah, but yeah, is, yeah. There anything, is there anything really major that went unsaid? Um. I think, uh, I, I, don't, I don't, probably, but, uh, uh <laughs> but I, I think, you know, you got the gist of my story. Um, I, I think for, for people, um, yeah, ultimately, you know, I, I think this is probably important. I, I, I found a business early and I closed quickly and I moved quickly and I kind of brute force make it the close and ultimately it worked out. Um, I think that, um, one thing, you know, we talk about, if you want to do this, I think it's very easy to get skittish about it, about buying a business and doing it and finding excuses not to and looking at every deal you see and seeing, okay, there's, there's, here's some hair on it. Here's some problems with it. I don't want to do it. And I do have a bunch of friend searchers that have been looking um, and they throw out every deal because it's got a little bit of hair on it. And it took them till like their 30th deal to be like, oh, I have to get a deal with a little bit of hair on it. And, and mm -hmm. listen, maybe, again, I think there are it depends on how you define hair and what's tricky about it. But um, I, if you're looking for the perfect deal, you might be looking for a real long time, if not forever. So finding something you can get comfortable with and being willing to pull the trigger. Yeah, well, maybe and maybe that is the art and the skill is figuring out what that's what that sweet spot is of just enough hair to deal with or finding the right kind of hair for you. Right. Uh, and, and really, maybe that's kind of one of the kind of the, the names of the game of, of being a good business buyer. Um, well, th this has been fantastic, Chad. We could have gone for another hour, but I got to let you and the audience go. Uh, how do you prefer people reach out to you if they have questions? Uh, probably on LinkedIn. Chad Hildebrandt, you can find. Um, I, have a, I have a Twitter I don't I, I look at, but I don't, I don't comment on, so I'm, I'm quiet, but, I, but I, I'm, a, I'm a lurker, if you will. But, so if you reach <laughs> out to me, I'll be there. Uh, I think it's the Chad Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, uh, okay. um, on Twitter. So you, you'll find me on there. Um, I'm happy to help out anyone who, in, in the process. I think the community has been incredible. You know, everyone's been so helpful to, 
and wanting to help out wherever they can. And so the ability to return the favor is always great. Chad, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for all of your prep in such a, a deep and rich conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Will.